Office Depot Office Max has great deals on everything you need to succeed, like stylish furniture and chairs to keep you working comfortably, the latest tech to keep you organized and productive, calendars and planners to keep you on schedule, and cleaning supplies to keep your space spotless. It's the perfect time to stock up on the supplies you need to succeed from the office to your home and everywhere in between. Need it fast? No problem. Place your order at officedepot.com and pick it up in just 20 minutes at your nearest Office Depot or Office Max store. This time on Millennial. It's your friends at Millennial telling you, please take this time to fill out the form. Every five minutes of the jazz loop, it's like, don't forget. We hope you're making headway on your application. And we got to do a TikTok, Chloe, when we're getting really close into the camera. Don't forget to fill out your form, motherfucker. Stop scrolling through TikTok. I've never actually seen someone in the wild wearing one of these. Really? And you live in the South. I haven't seen them at all. Well, you're a coastal elite. I can see why that. I I, I guess that's why. I'm out here in the desert, baby. This is where all the MAGA people are, apparently. Should be a fun couple weeks on Millennial, hopefully, as we're tracking the midterm elections. Hopefully we'll have lots to celebrate. I hope so. Maybe we just vow right now. We'll get drunk on the show if it's a big night for Democrats. Hey, don't threaten me with a good time. Welcome to Millennial, the home of pretend adulting and real talk. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. We wanted to kick this week's episode off by talking about the latest It's Corn trend that went viral on TikTok. It's essentially this adorable little child being interviewed and talking about his love of corn on the cob. And the original video was precious, but what made it even more of a viral trend was that uh, the same person whose name I'm not recalling right now who did the vi- or the autotune the news trends in like the 2010s you might remember hide your kids hide your wife uh, yeah. ended up auto-tuning this adorable interview it's turned into a viral song and it feels like every time I swipe in my for you page it's another corn trend. <laughs> Yeah. Andrew doesn't get it at all. I'm watching his face and he's like, I haven't seen this. This is going to be my first time listening to this. Here is corn. I really like corn. What do you like about corn? It's corn. A good corn that knobs. It has the juice. That's amazing. It's just pure joy. I think everybody should be as passionate about something in their lives as, as this young kid is with corn. It's so pure. It's corn. It kind of sounds like a children's song that you would hear on Blues Clues or yeah. Bluey or yes, yeah. yes, a hundred percent. Good for him though. Has anybody has BuzzFeed interviewed Corn Kid? Have we tracked Corn Kid down? <laughs> I'm sure he's done a handful of interviews, but I know for a fact that he's doing cameos now. Oh my gosh, how much? (laughs) That's so sweet. He does cameos. And he always says to people, have a corn-tastic day. That's really sweet. It's the cutest thing. If you two were to guess how much Corn Kid is charging, what would you guess? Because I have his page up right now. 100 bucks. It's hot right now. I hope a lot of money because I hope that his parents are setting him up for success in his adult life financially. So I'll go with Pam. I'll say 100 bucks. Okay, well, the price is $220. Good this for him. This kid is wow. going to be ready for college. Listen, good for you, corn kid. I agree. <laughs> good job. We should order a, a corn kid <gasps> video. <laughs> we should. Oh, that would be so cute. It's millennial. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you have a millennial-tastic day. <sighs> so last week, we were recording last Tuesday night, and there was some breaking news that Biden was going to finally offer some student loan debt relief. We didn't have the details at the time, but we were able to speculate because there was a little bit of reporting. We since have learned more information, and we thought since it is such a big deal and there's been a lot of talk about it over last week, we'll give people a quick rundown of some of the basic information. Right, Laura? Yeah. So this relief plan actually had a few surprises in it. You know, originally we were hearing that Um, The extent of the debt relief out of the Biden-Harris administration would be $10,000 for borrowers 
earning beneath a certain income threshold. And while that is true, it also includes up to $20,000 for borrowers under a certain income threshold if they received Pell Grants uh, while they were in school. This was a surprise drop. Um, I know a few people who were Pell Grant recipients and who are having their debt completely eliminated because of this, which is huge. They're also looking to target debt relief to low and middle income families by making the student loan system more manageable um, for current and future borrowers. So if you have undergraduate loans under this plan, you will pay no more than 5% of your discretionary income monthly on undergraduate loans. Again, heavy emphasis there. This is not for graduate loans, much to my chagrin, but it is still great news. To put it in perspective, up until this point, it's been 10%. So that's a pretty significant cut in what your monthly payments will have to be. The other thing that's really great about this is that the administration is going to be raising the amount of income that is considered non-discretionary income and therefore is protected from repayment. So this will guarantee that no borrower earning under 225% of the federal poverty level will have to make monthly payments. They can make $0 monthly payments and still have those monthly payments, air quotes, count towards their number of months of repayment. They're also going to be looking at uh, forgiveness of loan balances under $12,000 after 10 years of payments as opposed to the current 20, which is huge if you fall into this group of people. And then probably the biggest and most exciting part of this announcement is that the Fed will be covering the borrower's unpaid monthly interest. So the way that that works is if you are making consistent monthly payments on time, you will not pay for the interest. The government will. So this effectively eliminates any future interest costs for borrowers so long as they're making their payments on time and they're enrolled in this income-driven repayment plan. That's huge. It's one of the things we talked about last week was the interest. Like if they don't do anything about the interest, we're still fucked, kind of. Yeah, that's really good news. We were also a little worried last week because of what you were describing, Laura. But then I also had seen a stat. Almost 20 million people will have their debt fully canceled, according to the White House. That's a lot of people. That's a big dent in the debt. Yeah. I would not have guessed that this is going to clear out the debt of 20 million. I would have maybe guessed a couple million at best. And it really isn't that much in the grand scheme of things either. So when you think about just how many lives forgiving up to, you know, 20,000 has changed, then you start to think about like, how many more could they affect if they forgave, you know, 10,000 more, 20,000 more? It definitely makes me wonder if over the next several years, we're going to see more movements like this to further, you know, forgive a certain amount of debt, but also improve the income-driven repayment plans. Up until this point, they've kind of been your best option if you want to have the lowest possible monthly payment. But the end result is the interest is still ticking. So you keep your lo- your monthly payments low, but then on the back end, your balance is just increasing every month with that 6 to 9% interest on your loans. I will say um, for anyone who might be in a similar spot of having some graduate student loans, there are some things that are still a little unclear about this. One, we know the 5% cap is only for undergraduate loans. So we know that we probably won't see that for graduate loans. But when they're talking about uh, limiting or rather eliminating interest um, accumulation, as long as you make consistent monthly payments, they don't specify whether or not that's for undergraduate only or if it's for both. And for a lot of us who have graduate loans, we were encouraged by the Department of Ed to consolidate our debt. So for me, for example, there's no differentiation in my debt between what I took out for undergrad and what I took out for grad school. So for people like me, we're still kind of wondering, okay, how exactly does this apply? Don't forget me. Yeah. But then again, I think it's really important not to 
center this conversation on everyone's own personal circumstance because there's a lot to celebrate here and it is a step in the right direction. So even if even though I don't think I will benefit from this as much as other borrowers will, I'm still really, really happy for the people who are either getting their debt completely wiped out or significantly um, diminished. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, we did ask our listeners how this relief is affecting you in our Facebook group. And another Laura said, this news means all of my student debt will be gone. It won't change much in my life as I hadn't made any payments on them yet, but it means I'll never have to make payments on them. And it's one less thing hanging over my head. Plus, it's cut my overall debt in half. Because of this, getting rid of all my debt, including my car loan in the next one to two years, seems feasible, and that is fantastic. Congratulations. That's amazing news. Yeah. And it sets you up to be able to do a lot of things that you probably weren't planning to do anytime soon because of the amount of debt you had hanging over you. So this is huge. Kelsey says, and Kelsey has some good perspective, as someone with almost $50,000 remaining on my student loans, I was initially like, eh. But my husband pointed out that it does take about two years off of our loan payments to anyone else feeling a bit burned by the Biden administration over such a low amount. I encourage you to calculate how much quicker you'll pay off your loans without that $10,000. It's a great way to look at it. Because, yeah, yeah you'll, you typically get an estimate, I think, when your loan will actually be paid off. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. like 2035. And you're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So if you see that end date draw closer because of this, that can feel good. Jessica said, this will completely pay off the balance of my loans, which are from grad school, and my husband's undergrad loans since he received a Pell Grant. This loan forgiveness means we can get serious about finally buying a house and expanding our family. Yeah. This is huge. And this is exactly the kind of thing we talk about on this show all the time is people in our age group having to either delay or being uncertain about their ability to buy a house and start a family. So the fact that, you know, some of these relief recipients are thinking about being able to take that next step is huge. Yeah. Another Jessica said it doesn't clear all of it, but um, most of it was interest anyway. (laughs) I feel you. (laughs) And I'm a lot happier to pay back the lower amount. Plus, I think it'll greatly reduce my debt to income ratio, making it easier to buy a home in the next few years. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, too. Reducing your debt to income ratio, because that could be a depressing number to look at when you are trying to buy a house or trying to get another loan. And Kelsey said, I paid off my loans in November 2020, but I'm hoping to get some of that money back through the refund process. If it comes through, I might use that money for something extra in my upcoming wedding next year. Yeah. Love that. Bigger cake. Congrats. A a bigger open bar. (laughs) I don't like when the open bar is just like, you can have either this wine or that beer. Full open bar. Well, that's not an open bar now, is it? Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Probably insulting a bunch of people. <laughs> Listen, that, that shit's expensive. I, I, yes. will, yeah. I will give that to people. It's just an idea. It's just an idea. But so, Laura, can people just sit on their ass and have this money magically come in and then their their debt is lowered? Or what do they have to do? No, I'm so glad you brought that up, Andrew. This is a PSA for everyone. Do not forget that the forgiveness is not automatic. You will need to fill out a form, which should be released sometime in early to mid-October, and you'll need to fill that out before December 31st of this year in order to receive your debt forgiveness. So do not sleep on this. Uncle Joe is not, you know, waving a magic wand and just making the forgiveness happen. The Department of Ed actually has to sort through many, many millions of these applications. So get yours in as soon as it's available. I love that the deadline is New Year's Eve because I'm just thinking (laughs) about like people like, you know, okay, oh, a minute left till 2023. And then suddenly some people have a realization, holy fuck, I didn't (laughs) fill out the form. I have a minute left. You run away from like the New Year's countdown on TV and then you apply for it and then you're too late. That would be a horrible way to start 2023. So the deadline's 1231, but make it 
your own your your own personal deadline to be you know twelve fifteen or something like that. Because as we know from setting up deadlines ourselves for Patreon gifts and other matters, people tend to forget. Yeah. So just get it done now. Pause this episode and get it done now. Well, not now because it's not available now. Oh shit! Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. We'll we'll do this in October. We'll do a reminder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as soon as it's available, we will sing it from the mountaintops. And we will probably give another couple of reminders between October and December to make sure that y'all get these in. But again, congratulations, everyone. This is huge. Remember when, to encourage people to vote, we created a special episode of Millennial that was the length of the average amount of time it takes to vote? Oh, yeah, the ah, voting. We yeah. should do something like that. <laughs> I don't know if that would be counterproductive, though, because I want people to concentrate and make sure they're putting their information in correctly. Yeah. Oh. What if we just released like a five minute jazz loop, like elevator music? That sounds really <laughs> soothing. It's yes. your friends at Millennial <laughs> telling you, please take this time to fill out the form. Every five minutes of the jazz loop, it's like, don't forget. We hope you're making headway on your application. <laughs> don't forget. Don't forget. <laughs> don't forget to email us and tell us what you're going to do with the extra money. <laughs> and we got to do a TikTok, Chloe, when we're getting really close into the camera. Don't forget to fill out your form, motherfucker. Stop scrolling through TikTok. No, it's just going to be in all caps or else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got some great ideas here. Wonderful. Love it. But there's been some other good news this week, right, Laura? Yeah. So um, the Department of Homeland Security and President Biden announced a rule change that will go into effect on October 31st that will formerly codify uh, DACA, uh, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, it will be codified as a federal regulation, which protects things like work authorization and the lawfully present statuses that um, people who arrived in the United States um, as children without any kind of documentation status. Um, it also helps to protect against some of the legal challenges that DACA has seen um, over the past several years. So that's huge. Again, it's it's not a perfect solution um, and it can still face some challenges, but this does just bolster it. A bit. So that's good news um, for the DACA recipients. And right now there's about 600,000 of them. But this rule being implemented at the end of October will um, allow Biden to accept more applications for DACA status, which is great. There's also the Inflation Reduction Act and the Semiconductor Chips Bill, which are both things we've spoken about pretty extensively here on the show. Um, but they kind of set the stage um, for, you know, Biden's dark Brandon era, which we're going to talk <laughs> about here in a few minutes. Um, and something else that we're going to speak about a little more later is the continued drama um, that Trump is creating. Um, he's really making a minefield for Republicans ahead of midterms, which, again, is really helpful to Democrats as we're having so many wins and they're having so many, you know, collusions, <laughs> obstructions, <laughs> so many crimes, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. Bienvenido a Kaiser Permanente. El doctor ya te puede ver. Verá que aunque eres muy activo, ahora te cansas más rápido de lo normal. Verá que a menudo almuerzas comida rápida. Verá que pones a tu familia primero y tu salud tiende a caer en segundo o tercer lugar. Y claro que verá que tienes el azúcar alto, igual que tu papá. En Kaiser Permanente trabajamos juntos para ver todo lo que tú eres y darte el cuidado que tú mereces. Kaiser Permanente, para todo lo que tú eres. So what I wanted to talk about this week, and it's got an interesting personal-ish angle for me. Last week, the White House Twitter account started showing the hypocrisy of certain Republicans complaining about people getting their loans forgiven. The account, quote, tweeted these Republicans and detailed the amount of money these Republicans were forgiven when they took PPP loans, which we were discussing last week. And these tweets from the White House did numbers. Quoting Washington Post now, Democrats responded with enthusiasm, with nearly 200,000 people retweeting the thread and more than 700,000 liking it as of Friday afternoon, making it one of the White House's highest engagement tweets ever. The White House account gains more than 49,000 followers Thursday and more than 71,000 on Friday, far more than the couple thousand 
it generally gains per day, according to data from Social Blade. So I saw these tweets coming up actually in real time because I followed the White House on Twitter. And I thought it was so cool to see an official account doing this. Sometimes you'll see Twitter accounts like The Recount do something like this. That's a really good one to follow, by the way, for news clips related to politics throughout the day. But so what's up with this sudden change of in tone from the White House? Well, there's a new person in charge of social at the White House, Megan Coyne. She joined the Office of Digital Strategy as Deputy Director of Platforms in early August. Many are speculating that she was responsible for this idea for two reasons. One, she was one of the architects of at NJGov, the official account for the state of New Jersey. And you might be wondering, well, who cares? New Jersey, that's a shitty state. A lot of people like to hate on it. I am from New Jersey, so I have to defend it. This Twitter account, NJGov, has been so funny and snarky and sharp. <laughs> NJGov will frequently hate on the state of Delaware, which is just really funny <laughs> to see New Jersey and Delaware feuding on Twitter. It's so ridiculous. It has been a really good government account. And I have delighted in keeping up with all of the tweets. And then Megan also quote tweeted the success of the snarky White House tweets on Twitter last week with a smiley face when there was some news coverage about um, it trending. So people are thinking Megan's responsible. Like I said, she just started in early August, and then a few weeks later, these tweets start appearing. The big question is, can this new attitude make an impact? One of the reasons this excited Democrats and made everyone take notice is because this was the official White House Twitter getting snarky. It seems like something, like I said, that's reserved for a personal Twitter account. Definitely not an account that represents the White House, a place of dignity and respect. It's an interesting juxtaposition. Does this serve a practical purpose? I think that one thing I would maybe push back on a little bit is that I don't think this kind of tone is necessarily reserved for personal accounts anymore. I think that anytime you look at any sort of brand that's really doing well online, they're taking this first person snarky sort of approach. Uh, Duolingo is a great example of this. Also, the official Wendy's account going online (laughs) and roasting everybody and their mother. I mean, this is just kind of like the new way of social media Brands don't want to be seen as a large entity. They want to be seen as your friend. And so that's why you're starting to see all of these companies. And I guess now the White House, too, even when they're, you know, making social copy for something like like an Instagram post, it's not, you know, this celebrity did this. It's like, oh, I love this celebrity for doing this. So there's like a self insert in there that's supposed to help you insert yourself into that post so that you'll interact with it. So um, I think that this is really smart from a strategic standpoint, because we've seen that this strategy works really well, and that's what people are gravitating towards. But I do understand why it's a little bit shocking to see not only an official government account, but like the highest government account really leaning into this kind of tone. You know what I think, though? I think that... The government as an institution, our politicians, they are supposed to be accessible to the people because they work for us, not the other way around. So I think it's a really smart strategy that the White House is looking towards a social media presence that is more in line with the way people are using social media. I mean, people in general, but also just specifically people in this country. Um, I think it also shows a passing of the torch, (laughs) if you will, that finally um, our destinies as millennials and Gen Zers are starting to, you know, be in our own hands as we look at, you know, for example, the first Gen Zer maybe getting ready to get elected to Congress, right, after he won his Florida primary uh, a week or two ago. And we're seeing millennials starting to step into these positions of power. You know, there's Pete Buttigieg, who I know is, you know, a loved politician on this panel. And for a lot of our listeners, 
he is what we would call an elder millennial. So to me, this change in tone is reflective of of that, you know, the government becoming or at least attempting to create a more accessible style for the people, um, but also that the people who are moving into power are not always going to be these crotchety old white men who've, you know, been there for 40 and 50 years at this point. People also like watching a train wreck and hypocrisy <laughs> is a train wreck. You know, it's fun to watch. We all love a little and mess. Hate on, yeah, and, and hate on these people. So I think those are all really good points. Can this help turn people out in November, particularly younger voters? I guess it can make at least a dent if, you know, I mentioned these numbers before, all the retweets and the likes and new followers. I guess this can help turn people out because if they're getting angry over the hypocrisy, we'll see what else Megan and her team do. Hopefully more stuff like this that is aimed to surprise and delight people and get Twitter talking. If there is more of this, I guess I can see people getting riled up for November and really want to turn out for November. I think TikTok played, I'm not going to say it was the only thing, but I think it played a significant role in the 2020 election, as well as helping to bring down a number of very high profile Trump events. Remember how so many TikTok users uh, began working together to book seats at these Trump events and not show up. And the numbers were really significant. So I think it can have an impact. It's just a question of how much. I think at the end of the day, what this really helps do is like anytime something goes viral on any platform, you're putting it in front of more eyes and oftentimes more eyes than would normally see the thing. And so just purely from an outreach standpoint, I don't see how this could hurt in terms of the young person demographic, because I know that we've talked a lot before on this show, and Laura especially has been very vocal about how she wishes that instead of rolling over and taking it, Democrats would push back. And this is a prime example of one of the only times we've seen recently where they are really aggressively pushing back in a way that I guess is sort of reminiscent of the aggressive approach that some far right people tend to take. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so good to see the left finally pushing back and in such a big way like yeah Mm -hmm. my when i mentioned you know people were doing this yeah okay that's not the best example and and pam brought up some great points there but the the dignity of the white house is suddenly suddenly a little i don't want to say lower but the white house is more down to earth and that's appealing to potential voters i also just think the reason that this made an impact is that it wasn't a fancy infographic that would have been very easy to gloss over that definitely would have also been the much easier approach because they have all that information so the fact that whoever concocted this thread literally quote tweeted these politicians and attached yeah the information directly to them was a huge statement. Rip their mentions. Right. Yeah, they really this viewed <laughs> everyone. It was great. I also just, I love how it feels like Biden is taking a similar tone on this topic when he was asked a question at a press conference on the day that student debt relief was announced. Um, he was asked a question about, you know, don't you think this is unfair to people who've already paid off their student loans? And he just turned around and looked back because he was already leaving the room. He turned around and looked back at the reporter who asked and was like, do you think it's fair that big banks and, you know, hedge fund managers get these enormous tax breaks all the time that regular Americans don't see? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> he just Come left. on, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a really good moment. And again, something that really resonates with people. We, we want to see a confrontation like that. We want to see the quick clap back from Biden. And we also want to see proof that he's really rooting for the little man. Yeah, he truly gets the situation and how we all are feeling. Right. And it's not even just like middle class, not to say that middle class people don't also struggle. But I think that it's a very easy position to take to say I'm I'm trying to help the middle class reach that next tax bracket. But yeah, that definitely is the the tone that I'm getting from that as well, which is nice. So you can't force virality, but I hope they try more material, if you will, 
like this. I do think James, who's listening live on our Patreon right now, brought up a good point, too. This can be a little dangerous getting back to the discussion about, you know, brands being down to earth and maybe trusting them too much. And this doesn't really relate to the White House exactly, but other brands like the ones he mentioned, Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, Chick-fil-A, like if they're all so down to earth, you kind of forget that they're big corporations who actually just want to make a dollar off of you. Wendy's isn't your friend. They just want to sell you a cheeseburger and a frosty. (laughs) You just got to keep in mind, everybody just wants to take advantage of you, even the White House. Hey, if the White House can start roasting people, that would be cool. That would be great. Yeah. It's also a double edged sword, though, because we would hate if like Trump took the White House Twitter account and then like, you know, he personally started bitching from it. Like, that'd be really painful to watch. Yeah. Well, I, I think, too, there there is an issue that you're highlighting there, which is that the White House Twitter account is managed by whoever controls the White House. Right. So it's not as though this change in tone is something that is guaranteed to last forever. Um, If we lose in 2024, for example, you could probably expect the White House Twitter to be doing what it was doing pre-Biden. Yes. And I'll be giving the account an unfollow. As soon as Biden took office, I was like, follow White House, follow at POTUS, <laughs> follow at FLOTUS, follow at press secretary, like, you know, just putting them all back. It's a dark four years, and now they're all back. <laughs> they're all back, <laughs> baby. Remember when Biden used to be super cool, though, before his presidency? I mean, like, yeah. when he was... When he was Uncle Joe. When he was Uncle Joe with the aviators and the ice cream and the big smile and malarkey, malarkey, malarkey. You know, when he was vice president, everybody loved him. There's probably a time when we all were just like, oh, man, it'd be so cool if Grandpa Grandpa Cool was uh, our president. But, yeah, he just started running for office and we were all just like, oh, he's he's pretty old now. And that's okay, but it's like he's not all there. And I notice yeah. he repeats the same phrases all the time, too. Like, come on, man. And I'm being serious. I mean it. I mean it. Like, you say these Because he's a dad and a grandpa. <laughs> Don't your parents also have, like, certain phrases yeah. that they repeat? Because I know my mom does. And the one that always has my brother and I rolling is whatever she says, this is the real McCoy, <laughs> which has definitely fallen out of fashion, but I've been informed that is is actually like a real thing. I don't know what so. that means. <laughs> I have no idea what it is either. The real McCoy is an idiom and metaphor. It's used to mean the real thing or the genuine article. Yeah. when We all know that she's super jazzed whenever she brings that one out. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the real deal. This is the real McCoy. Okay. I'll try to add that <laughs> to my repertoire. Pam, you got to teach Mama G some uh, current day lingo. <laughs> Every once in a while, she will come home and she'll ask me like, what certain phrases mean. Um, My favorite was a couple of years ago when Demi Lovato did an interview. She did like a huge tell-all. She came home and she was like, "Um, I I need you to explain to me what California sober means. (laughs) Well, what does that mean? Because I don't... (laughs) It was really funny. It means that you still smoke weed, but you're not like (laughs) doing coke (laughs) or drinking. That's funny. That's good. Okay, yeah, that's one of her songs. Oh, that's, that's really great. (laughs) But, you know, Laura, I was thinking of you and I was thinking of The Daily Show, thinking about these tweets from the White House, because one of the highlights, one of the key components of Jon Stewart's Daily Show, and maybe it still is with Trevor Noah, was Jon Stewart pointing out the hypocrisy of a lot of the people on the right. And because of that, and because of Jon's sense of humor, the demographics on that show were primarily young adults. Around our age currently, you know, when we were growing up in our mid to upper 20s and low 30s, I pulled some quick demographic data. A 2004 Nielsen media research study commissioned by Comedy Central put the median age at 35. If we can get more people just like that who loved what The Daily Show was doing onto the White House Twitter account and really liking what they're doing, maybe it'll make an impact. At least make people more aware. I think that's the big takeaway. Like, yeah, if the White House can get more eyes on what's really happening, that would be amazing. Yeah, you increase awareness, you'll probably see an increase in engagement, too. And Laura, you mentioned Dark Brandon. There's yes. been so much good news around Biden recently that the left has taken back the Dark Brandon meme. And I tried to do some research on Dark Brandon, and apparently it's complicated. Like, Vox literally wrote, it's complicated. Yeah. But... 
the right was using dark Brandon as putting Joe in a negative light. Okay. And then the left is taking dark Brandon and saying he's actually not evil. He is the good guy. And I quote one tweet, the deep state told Biden he could not withstand the storm. Biden replied, I am the storm. (laughs) Yeah. What I love about this, I mean, it all comes from the let's go Brandon Right. Shit that was going on where um somehow I wouldn't even I wouldn't even say Republicans, I would just say MAGA enthusiasts adopted this let's go Brandon as a stand-in for fuck Joe Biden. I never really got it because I was like, Yeah, you can just say fuck Joe Biden, like Yeah. <laughs> speaking in this coded language does not impress anybody, but whatever. I wonder if we're gonna start seeing less let's go Brandon shirts. Probably not. Because, like, these people who wear these shirts are not paying attention to the actual news, so. No. I've never actually seen someone in the wild wearing one of these. Really? What? And no. you live in the South. I do. But I'm in Atlanta. Like. Hey, you're in your little liberal bubble. It's a bubble. blue bubble. Oh, I see them probably once a week at least. Really? See, my parents live outside of the Atlanta perimeter and they're definitely in Trump country but even up there I haven't seen any wow Pam yeah. do you see them I haven't seen them at all what the fuck well you're a coastal elite I can see why that I, I, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's why I'm out here in the desert baby this is where all the MAGA people are apparently I've, yeah I mean listen we get them up here too but not as often as I would assume either of you see them I'm seeing the shirts, the bumper stickers. I'm seeing straight up fuck Biden <laughs> shirts. It's been since... a while since I've seen a, a MAGA hat. And the one neighbor that was flying the big Trump 2024 flag has since moved away. So that flag is gone permanently, which is great. Oh, Congratulations. Great. That's great news. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I was ex- especially excited about that. There's evidence that this good news is actually working and we're not just being like liberals in a bubble in a fantasy world. A new Gallup poll has found that Biden's overall approval puts him in better standing in the August before midterm elections than five predecessors over the past 40 years. Reagan in 82, Clinton in 94, G.W. Bush in 2006, Obama in 2014 and Trump in 2018. I I can remember that the 2014 and 2018 midterms were a bloodbath for the president's party in those respective years. So, you know, maybe it's good news. I'm already hearing talk about like, oh, this this already this is great news for the Democrats in the midterms. Like you were saying, Laura, we can't get comfortable. You were saying that last week. But people are speaking like really confidently about what all this news is going to mean. Yeah. And they need to stop. Honestly, (laughs) they need to fucking stop. Take the the current win in the news cycle, harness it, use the momentum to get you where you're going. But remember, it's only August. We've got a couple months to go. There's going to be an October surprise in there somewhere. There always is. So we just need to lead with the assumption that we're behind in the polls. Because if we lead with the assumption that it's going to be really, really close, then that helps keep people from getting complacent two months is a long time it is a lot can happen in two months y'all but anyway on trump we thought we should finally update people on that situation laura do you want to run through these updates yeah so just some quick updates and there's obviously a ton of conversation that could be sparked from these updates and we probably won't do that today Um, but just wanted to make sure that we were including that in our little political roundup here um so The documents that were taken from Mar-a-Lago in January that we found out about after the uh, raid from a few weeks ago turned out to be over 100 classified top secret intelligence documents. Um, So this is why the Justice Department got involved and raided Trump's resort a couple of weeks ago. And reportedly, he refused to hand these things over when the National Archives and the Justice Department tried to recover them, which led us to this point. Um, The affidavit used to secure a search warrant of Trump's home that was just released this past week indicated that the FBI had found, quote, probable evidence of obstruction. And during the raid, 
the FBI found 11 more sets of classified documents. Um, Some of these records were labeled no foreign, meaning they are not to be shared with foreign governments, and SI, meaning special intelligence gained through foreign communication. And the FBI um, also confirmed that this all relates to an ongoing investigation um, that was started last May. So it's pretty serious. And I think that we've all noticed in recent weeks, Republicans seem to be distancing themselves from Trump because he really has nothing good to offer them as they're going into what could be a really difficult midterm season. However, while all this is happening, Trump has resorted to sharing QAnon and 4chan memes on Truth Social because that's all he has. Truth Social has been having some money problems, too. I yeah, read recently. And wow. Isn't it funny that he removed himself and his fucking spawn from the board just in time for that all to happen? <laughs> I didn't hear about that. That's great. But yeah, he so <laughs> Rolling Stone reported that um, just a few days ago, Trump actually went on a 60 post QAnon and 4chan meme spree on Truth Social. That's insane. Should be a fun couple weeks on Millennial, hopefully, as we're tracking the midterm elections. Hopefully we'll have lots to celebrate. I hope so. Maybe we just vow right now. We'll get drunk on the show if it's a big night for Democrats. Hey, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> I guess we'll get drunk either way. It'll be very exciting news or very bad news. So we'll I see. I think either way, we we definitely win in one element. So. <laughs> <laughs> Being inebriated? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to make uh, bad news easier to swallow, and it's going to make good news sound even greater. So We've been talking a lot about what's trending and here's another topic that's been trending this week right pam yeah so like you tease we started the show talking about one viral trend and it's corn and so it seems only fitting that we're winding down by talking about another there's a term that some of you might have heard being tossed around in recent weeks or months called quiet quitting um as with most things these days it seems to have originated over on TikTok, but over the past few weeks, we've seen a lot of mainstream outlets covering this concept. Uh, there is a story about quiet quitting in the New York Times. Washington Post has also uh, explored this concept, and The Guardian has also written an article about this as well, so it seems like a really good time to bring this up. So for those of you who don't really have uh, any ideas to what quiet quitting actually means. Uh, the answer to that is that it's a little bit convoluted because the meaning has kind of morphed over the course of uh, its lifespan. But uh, basically, one thing it actually isn't is actually walking away from your job. So some people take quiet quitting to mean that the quitting part pertains to not going above and beyond anymore in your place of work. As one TikTok user puts it, you are, quote, no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. Others are embracing this concept uh, by claiming that it gives them permission to stop stressing about not being able to go above and beyond the call of duty. And then others still define quiet quitting as letting go of the concept of doing additional work without additional pay. So however, which way you look at it, it seems to be kind of like one of these empowering terms, which is always nice to see. But the interesting thing about this is to me that there are some that are arguing over who quiet quitting really actually is for because the truth of the matter is not everybody can afford to participate in something like this in their place of work. So a couple of people have pointed out that, you know, like doctors and teachers can't always just phone it in, so to speak. Uh, which makes a lot of sense. So with all of that in mind, I wanted to kick off this discussion by asking the both of you what your overall thoughts about this whole concept of quiet quitting is. Like, where do you feel? How do you feel about this? Because I I feel like a little conflicted personally, but I don't blame anybody for participating. My conflict, internal conflict comes in when I think about how this can negatively impact people long term. If you're satisfied with your salary and your current role, great. Quiet quit if you think you can get away with it and still hold that job and you'll be happy for the rest of your life. But 
I worry about people who might be quiet quitting and then the potential implications there. Like if you quiet quit and then maybe you aren't able to get a promotion down the road or you aren't able to get another job. I'm worried about people taking this suggestion a little too seriously and then they're just not thinking about the long-term impacts. Because if you are a great employee, in many cases, not all, you can get ahead, you can get a promotion, you can get a raise. There is a lot of potential upside to putting in more work. And I'm not encouraging anybody to kill themselves over their job, but you got to strike that balance if you want to get ahead. I think where it can become a little murky is that the idea of going above and beyond is relative to each person. So I think when you're talking about that and the concept of, hey, don't go above and beyond you know, what it is you're being paid for, just remembering that what that person thinks is above and beyond and what you think are above and beyond are probably different things. The thing that I believe the most, and I guess you could say it's tangentially related to this trend if you wanted to, I think that it's okay to want a job where you go, you clock in, you do your work, you do it well, and then you clock out and you live your life and your whole identity doesn't have to be tied up in the job. Now, obviously, there are some types of jobs where that is naturally going to happen. Like you were talking about doctors, teachers, people don't go into teaching as a profession because they think they're going to make a lot of money at it. They go into it because they have a passion for education. So I can understand why a teacher isn't able to like leave their job and treat it like a nine to five but I think for people who are fortunate to have that nine to five job, it's okay to leave work at the end of the day and let work be separate from the rest of your life. But I know there are also people who are really passionate about what they do, and that's okay too. I think it's just really, it's always been really important to me to be able to define like, Whatever your relationship is to your work and how you feel about it, that's yours. And it's not something for somebody else to tell you is wrong or right, even. That's something that you personally get to determine. I don't know if that's quiet quitting. <laughs> I don't know if that fits this topic. But that's always what I think of when these conversations happen is like, you know, there's no shame in just wanting to work your 40 hours and be done as long as you're doing your job well. Yeah. And if you're happy. Yeah. And and that's that's what you want. You don't want to go any further. I mean, that's just what I would add on to. Now, maybe you can put in the baseline that's expected of you and you will still go further. But some industries are very competitive and you need to have a leg up on other people. So you do have to work a little harder and stand out in a unique way. As trying to get a job has always been about standing out in a unique way. But then sometimes you do all of that and you still get passed over because, you know, good old nepotism or, you know, someone else's connections or it, it could be any number of things. And so in that respect, I understand why something like quiet quitting would be attractive to, to somebody in that position. But at the same time, you know, I would hope that if you're being mistreated, at your job, you don't just take this as a an excuse to stay there longer than you should, because, you know, there's always room to leave and to to seek out another opportunity that's going to make you happy, even if it is an opportunity like Laura was describing, where you just have a basic nine to five and then you clock out and you leave your work at the door and you've completely separated your work. Um, from your home life, which I think is super healthy, you know, especially if that's what you need. Um, and I really liked what you had to say about that, because one of the other questions I wanted to bring up is if we feel like we're reaching a point in this country where we see society starting to rebel against this concept of work being such a huge part of all our lives and work being such a huge part of our personalities, because I definitely think that that is such a cultural thing in America. And if you spend any time abroad, 
you'll notice, especially in like Latin American countries, for example, there is a distinct separation between work and your real life or your home life. Yeah. In America, we're conditioned to believe that work is the most important aspect of your life. Nothing else matters except for your job. Whereas in other countries, they're supportive of working less, fewer work days a week, more vacation time, longer maternity slash paternity leave. Wasn't it France that actually made it illegal to force employees to check their work email after hours? I love that. And I would think people outside of America are less inclined to quiet quit because they're actually treated with fucking respect. I know like in our line of work, sometimes it feels like an always on job because we can always get notified by Slack. I will frequently envy the life of people in some some positions where when you clock out at the end of the day, you truly are clocking out at the end of the day instead of potentially getting messages about certain items. And I'm not just talking about (laughs) these two podcasts that we do, but like I work with several other podcasts. I never know when I'm going to hear from them sometimes because they've got their own recording schedules and and due dates and stuff like that. So there is something to be said for um, the life of somebody who is working in a traditional, let's say nine to five, just firm hours. Yeah, it might not be the most exciting job, but hey, when you clock out, you're done. And that's pretty cool. I envy that. Yeah. Or like normal weekends. I don't I mean, I know that people that work in service industries also don't have normal weekends, but especially if you carry your office in your pocket, you know, especially if you're in media, it's like you get pinged at any time. Yeah. And so then you have to sit there and decide, like, do I answer this? Do I do this? Do I not do this? It's like it's this whole like little mind game that ends up happening. Uh, a lot of times, too, when people are much younger, I know that I definitely always felt like I had to say yes to everything for a really, really long time when I was first starting out. And I don't regret doing that because I do think that it added to the experience level. But I can't imagine myself doing as much as I was doing at 18, 19, 20. Have any of us ever actually quiet quit? I know this term has not been around, you know, our whole <laughs> lives, but I feel like the concept isn't necessarily new. It's oh, just yeah. got a shiny new tag on it. Yeah, it's it's not new at all. I'm sure many of us have been in positions or situations where we're just like, ah, you know what? I'm not really liking this job or this person's annoying, so I'm just going to put in the bare minimum. I've definitely been in situations with a couple of podcasts I've worked with where I'm just like, I'm not getting paid enough, I don't think, for this. And I'll I'll do a job that I think is really good and I, I, I'm proud to put out. I could go further, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so I've been in situations like that, but I don't think I've ever quite quit to the point where I've made a negative impact on any of my work. It's just like doing the baseline. And the other problem with like podcast work in particular is that your work will get judged by certain clients. Some people aren't as anal, but other people are really freaking anal. I got a couple anal clients right now. And like, sure, I could quiet quit those, but that's not going to be a solution because people are checking my work, so to speak. So I just have to quit quit to get out of it. Loud quit. I don't think I've ever quiet quit. I've definitely, especially earlier on in my career, I was very vocal, actually, about things that I didn't like. I'm thinking about like my first teaching job, for example. And that resulted in me having a meeting with my boss and us mutually agreeing that this was no longer the the right place for me. But I think when it comes down to something that you recognize is your livelihood (laughs) and how you pay your bills... It's really hard for me to adopt this idea of like dialing back what I'm doing because I'm too anxious (laughs) to do that. I'm like, do I want to make myself relevant and useful in my job or do I want to maybe be someone who doesn't do a lot or is perceived not to do a lot? So that's an anxiety that I have tended to carry. I'm trying to work on it because... You should have a work life balance. It's healthy. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree with that. But also you just you're you're trying to advance in your career, I would assume. 
And I think that's a huge factor. Like that's a that's a huge factor factor for me. That's why I wouldn't want to quiet quit one of my bigger jobs. I'm always hoping that each thing I do leads to other things, whether it's just a reference or it's a bigger audience or it leads to maybe an entirely new career, maybe adjacent, but something entirely new. Like I'm always thinking about that when I'm picking up roles and uh, submitting work to clients. And I think we all at this point, in, in terms of our uh, the careers that we have now, we kind of know what stuff you can pull back on when you realize that you're starting to do a little more than you actually need to. It's causing more stress into your life. And then you also know when there are some things where you're like, no, I really need to take the time to do this well, or I need to take an extra bit of time to to add more to this because it's going to make my work stand out. It's going to make me feel better about what I'm putting out into the world. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's ever like a, a clear answer for everybody. Although I'm sure there is a clear answer for some people. Well, have yeah. you ever quiet quit Pam? Did you quiet quit hypable? Oh. You saw yourself inching towards the uh, 250 word count minimum and you're like, uh, 249, <laughs> you know 250. I'm done. Bye. No, I mean, honestly, like, yeah, there are some, you know, some days you're just tired and you're like, I don't know very much about this. I know I need to hit certain word count. I'm not going to go any further than that because, well, and that's like a little bit different because if you're working on a tighter deadline, you're thinking, do I spend 45 minutes trying to figure out what the heck this means? Or do I just have a base level understanding of this and just like do the minimum and get that assignment done? Sorry. (laughs) I was trying to delete the clip. Andrew's over here like, I'm thinking about corn kids. Yeah, I'm quite quitting this discussion (laughs) thinking about corn. (laughs) But then on the flip side, there are other times where it's like not just for Hypable, but for other places I've worked. If it's something that I really know well, then it's like, well, I could finish this in 300 words, but I could also add 300 more and really kind of, you know, make this into something a bit better, a bit nicer. And that always feels good, too. So, And I think sometimes that can be a sign whether or not you're in the right job. Yeah. I know it's hard because like most people are not in a position to be able to say my job is not fulfilling to me, so I'm just going to quit. Most of us can't do that. But to that point you just brought up, Pam, I think it can be a really good indicator if you feel like a significant amount of the time you are just phoning it in versus you've been in other jobs where you feel inspired to go above and beyond, that might be your sign that it's time to look for something new. And yeah, for sure. There's also no shame in that. I think that is something that relates to this whole trend as well, that I think is a positive move for the future of how people in this country regard their careers. Or their jobs, right? Yeah, definitely. And this is like not the best example because it's behind the paywall. But I know that you both now know that I went a little too hard with my variety show presentation, <laughs> but I was having fun with it. So it was, it was so fun. Good. You know, I was I was happy to to do that, even though it did not need to be as extra as it ended up being. So <laughs> <laughs> you got to pick and choose your moment, yeah. uh, basically, is what it comes down to. And I really think that at the end of the day, that really will help create a better balance in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think similarly, like I always tell people, I really enjoy editing podcasts. As long as the client isn't super anal and uh, sending me back a million notes and then we're passing versions of the show back and forth for a week. Like, I hate that shit, but... Let me follow my heart and let me try to put out a good product. And, uh, you know, if you have some suggestions, that's fine. But my point is, like, I enjoy doing it, so I don't mind going a little further because I also really care about the listening experience and I want to want to keep my clients happy. But if you're getting paid, you know, minimum wage and you don't see any future at this place of work, I can totally understand why you're just putting in the bare minimum. And maybe you're thinking, maybe by putting in the bare minimum, you're also thinking about, well, what career could I pivot into? Where could I apply to next? And that's also a really good thing, too. Like if you're suddenly spending less energy working for this company because you're focused on potentially working at another company that you think will work out better for you, that sounds like a pretty good plan. Yeah. And I think, again, it the bare minimum idea... 
I know I mentioned this already. It can be really tricky to talk about because perceptions of that can vary so much. There are honestly times where in your job, in your career, whatever you want to call it, that you've got so much going on that you almost have to put limits on where you're spending your time so you don't find yourself spread too thin. Mm-hmm. Like it's better to be able to do one or two things really well than to do five or six things at a mediocre level. So sometimes putting like up boundaries and limitations can be really useful for that kind of thing. And I just want to make sure that nobody thinks that we're saying like you're doing the bare minimum if you like, if you have those professional boundaries. I think that's yeah. okay. Yeah. So this is 2022 so far. We have Wordle, Quiet <laughs> Quitting, Be Real, Corn. What else am I missing? We need to keep an ongoing list and then look at look at back on it at the end of the year. Should we talk about everything being given the suffix "ussy"? <laughs> <laughs> the year of ussy. <laughs> the year of ussy. <laughs> okay, there's our list so far. Well. Pam, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the variety show that you did that's available exclusively to our OTP patrons and higher. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes. Um, my PowerPoint presentation is on why I think NSYNC is better than the Backstreet Boys and why I think NSYNC is the best boy band of the 90s and the early 2000s. No, I will not be taking questions at this time. You're just going to have to live with my statement as divisive as it is. The passion and attitude that Pam brought to the presentation, I hadn't seen this side of Pam before. Very, very well done, Pam. Thank you. I'm so glad you both enjoyed it. It was so good. Yeah, she did not quite quit that. No, one could say I put my whole ussy into it. Right. (laughs) After that was done, I was like, I think this was the most impassioned of the three presentations that we did for the variety show. Yeah, I agree. It was so good. So that and many more features are available at patreon.com slash millennial this week. And actually, speaking of maybe, let's say, nostalgia, we have a all pop culture themed edition of After Dark this week. We're going to call it Hype, Pam's old pop culture podcast spun out of hypeable why not there's a lot of pop culture news that's been going on yes of course we need to check in on uh pam's heart rate to make sure she's okay following taylor swift's latest album announcement i'll be checking my pulse live just for the show (laughs) (laughs) and we got some other music to talk about and some tv news to talk about as well so patreon.com slash millennial thanks to everybody who supports us and now it's time for some recommendations actually speaking of pop culture i want to recommend this new princess diana documentary on hbo max which is just called the princess It follows Princess Diana's life in the spotlight. But what's really interesting about it is you don't get any modern day interviews from the royal family correspondent at PopSugar.com. This is all interviews and news clips from Princess Diana's life. There's no voiceover that's narrating the whole arc of the documentary. It's all news clips and interviews. And I thought that was so cool and a different way to present all this information. So check it out. I felt like I saw at least two more seasons of The Crown with everything that I learned in this documentary. I never really followed this all closely. So a lot of it was actually new to me. And by the way, this week is the 25th anniversary of her death. So that's why they released it this month. But yeah, check it out. Really good. Pam, I saw you nod. Did you watch it? It's on my list, but I was just nodding to the 25th anniversary thing. Um, Princess Diana was a huge fixture. Not in like my life personally, but I have like very vivid memories of like that was a death that really affected my mom. It's like that. And then like the Selena uh, assassination, which is just like really vivid memories of both of those days. Like when that when those news pieces hit. Same. I was having a sleepover Mm. with my friends and we were watching a movie. My mom came out and made us turn the movie off so she could watch the news. The live coverage, yeah. Yeah. And I was so pissed. (laughs) 
Well, that's that's a dark note, but I would like to recommend uh, Only Murders in the Building on Hulu this week. Um, the show, the second season wrapped pretty recently, and I just finished season two last night and really enjoyed it. I'm super excited for what's to come in the show. And I feel like this is a great recommendation because the show, of course, stars Selena Gomez, who makes that amazing lip souffle that Pam recommended last week. And I ended up buying and I love it. And so I bought some more. (laughs) So uh, I figured this would be a good week to recommend Only Murders in the Building. Steve Martin and Martin Short, like lifelong friends, they do a a show together, like around the country. I really want to go to it sometime. That's cute. I didn't know that. Yeah. And in case you need more boy band slash specifically in sync goodness in your life, I wanted to recommend the interviews series. This is a five part series that aired on Lance Bass's podcast, The Lance Bass Show. And it's just him talking individually with with each of the other four guys. And then at the end, I think it's Chris that interviews him. Uh, These were originally released in March of 2020, but it's pretty easy to scroll back to that point. And the episodes are about like an hour and a half long each. And I always just think it's really interesting to hear about what was happening specifically in like the 90s and the early 2000s, like that bit of pop culture is fascinating because social media didn't exist. So a lot of the stories that come out of that time or earlier are kind of like new information when they do because there was nobody around to snap a photo or to record that stuff. So if you're interested in boy band history and specifically in NSYNC history, I would recommend checking out that five-part podcast series. If you have any feedback, hit us up, millennialshow at gmail.com, or you can use the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. Also, we would really appreciate if you reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And finally, follow us on social media. We're Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then over on TikTok, we are Millennial Pod. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.